1: Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks for joining us. I'm really excited about today, and I'm excited to share with you the interview that I just did with Eben Kirksey. Now, Eben just edited this fabulous book called The Multispecies Salon. This was uh, produced by Duke University Press in 2014, and it's a book that is exciting not just for what it contains, but also for how it models a way of thinking and being Being part of a scholarly and artistic and thinking and human and cross-human and interspecies collective. So what the book does is it collects essays, recipes, um, accounts of projects, thoughts in three different parts of the book. Blasted landscapes, edible companions, and life and biotechnology. Not only does um, it, in doing so, really open up for us a window into some really wonderful works, um, some collaborative works by scholars working together, some work by artists, some work that's grown out of collaborations across the arts and the humanities, but it also models I think um, what can happen when you really enter into a, kind of a series of gatherings, a volume, any kind of relationship with other scholars and other thinkers in a spirit of curation, a spirit of care, a spirit of opening playfulness. And if we do that, and I think if we do more of that, then the kind of scholarly interactions that many of us probably are used to having at you know big conferences and the like, sitting at our computers, authoring single authored works, this is what a lot of us spend a lot of our time doing in the humanities. If we move to this more, or at least if we open ourselves up to thinking in this more collaborative mode, some really, really exciting and very nurturing and nourishing kind of work can come out of that. And the volume is very much um, an example of what can happen when that is possible. So this was a great time talking with Evan. I hope you enjoy the conversation to come. And I really hope you have a chance to both get your hands on a copy of the book and also explore the website that we talk about um, that very much exists in relationship with the printed work. They're both really, really inspiring and stimulating and also great fun. So thanks very much for listening, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk with Eben Kirksey about the new book that he just edited called The Multispecies Salon. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology and Society, Eben. And thanks, first of all, for editing an amazing book that I think has really, really wide ranging transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary um, importance, not just to STS, but far, far beyond that. And also thanks for making the time and negotiating time differences with me. I'm really, really happy to have you here today.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for inviting me on, Carla.
1: Great. So Eben, what are you usually busy researching and writing about when you're not working on the salon?
0: Uh, So one of the projects that I'm I'm working on now is uh, a study of Sort of nature and culture in the broadest possible sense in, in the Americas. Um, so I, I started working on the multi-species salon as as a sideline um, to a, a science and technology studies project. I, I got a National Science Foundation postdoc grant to hang out in Panama and Costa Rica and Florida and um, do do some deep. Participant observation with scientists, and uh, I, I had this this small uh, little part of the grant that was for a biodiversity conference. And instead of hosting a, a panel discussion involving experts, uh, I decided to use that money to to curate an art show to to um, maybe push uh, uh, the the genre of, of scholarly engagement in, in a different sort of direction than than the usual um, you know fifteen minute paper. Uh, type conference format. Mm -hmm.
1: So I love that. And I think this is one of the things that we'll talk um, quite a lot about as we're talking about the book. I mean, I think there's been a lot of attention lately, even in the past week, I think, on the Chronicle um, uh, website on the... Problems, right? And the things we take for granted about regular conference format. I mean, so many of us, I'm sure, have had these frustrating experiences. You go to conferences, there are these stand and deliver talks. Everything's choreographed. Someone's talking at you. You know, there's this very kind of rigidly um, designed, at least in principle, if not um, specifically Q and A. And then we all go home. And I think there's something really, really special about the spirit um, that you're bringing to the Salon book, but also um, the spirit that you brought to the art exhibit that it sprang from. And so let's talk a little bit about that. So the book came out of a traveling art exhibit, also called the Multispecies Salon. In this traveling exhibit, as you describe in the introduction, anthropologists, artists, and other scholars together explored three questions. And so I'll take these questions pretty much from the book. The first one, which beings flourish and which fail? when natural and cultural worlds intermingle and collide? Second question, what happens when the bodies of organisms and even entire ecosystems are enlisted in the schemes of biotechnology and the dreams of biocapitalism? And third, in the aftermath of disasters, what are the possibilities of biocultural hope? So, can you talk a little bit about this um, salon? Sort of how did um, you get involved um, in this salon, and how did you decide to make a book out of this collection of exhibits and pieces?
0: So instead of issuing a call for paper, a CFP, um, we, we issued a different sort of call. Initially, we we invited uh, all sorts of people to bring living things in, into an art gallery. So we issued a CFO, a call for organisms, and and we spread that call to um, you know. People who have bona fide credentials in art worlds, but then also people like school kids and, and anthropologists and other allied intellectuals. And what we were really trying to do is, is cultivate a space where, where we might have surprises emerge. So rather than um, you know seek out artworks or, or use artists that uh, had a didactic intent, like a, a clear message that they wanted to communicate, and you know just using pretty pictures or installations to communicate a fixed idea. What we were trying to do is craft these objects that get people speaking and thinking differently about issues at hand and um, also break down that relationship between object and subject to engage with art as something that might look you in the eye. Living creatures um, that sometimes, uh, uh, in in, in the case in in this show, sometimes were actually created by humans, genetically modified organisms that are dependent on us for, for care. Um, you know what, what? What's the implications of of bringing an organism like that into the gallery and and, and calling it an art object?
1: Mm-hmm. So the the exhibit itself, right? This was a traveling um, series of events, um, of gatherings. There were lots of different. It sounds like kinds of entanglements and kinds of engagements and um, material experience that were embodied in these exhibits. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the process of moving from this ongoing series of exhibits and very, very different kinds of interactions to producing a book? Um, um, At what point did you decide that this set of experiences could be translated into a book? Um, And what were some of the most challenging um, and perhaps some of the most exciting aspects of that translation from series of events two books.
0: So, so one piece that might sort of help help uh, everyone grapple with how this this art uh, exhibit worked as it moved is is a piece called Sourdough Cultures that Jake Metcalf brought brought into the gallery. So, um, basically, this this was a sourdough starter kit that he got off the internet. Um, it's a culture that crossed the Oregon Trail um, it, with the expansion of, of white settler colonialism, and then in the '90s uh, started propagating itself on the internet. So. So sourdough cultures are these multi-species assemblages. They pick up new spores, new organisms every time they move. And the art exhibit was very much like that. Uh, The salon uh, morphed and and mutated um, as as it went into new spaces. Um, we, We thought about the process of transitioning from a a show where we were trying to cultivate these surprises, a, 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 an open space where um, parasites and, and others might might emerge. Um, the the transition from that uh, very dynamic and open process in, into a, a a stable book was. Um, something like a, a process of gleaning. So Rustin Hognes, a radio producer in California, has curated an amazing series of interviews uh, uh, about gleaning. So, so gleanings um, in in one sense are the practices that happen after an agricultural harvest. Um, someone will go into a field and, uh, basically be be given license to pick up the food that wasn 't collected as as part of the regular um, harvest um, we we thought about gleaning artifacts in detritus uh, ideas that were left over um, things that were discarded in the salon um, as as a similar process to to the editorial project um, so so you know this in part was a curatorial project uh cur- curate means care so caring for the the artifacts and objects and living organisms that that we brought into this space but then and caring for these uh, the, these fragments, these these things that were left behind, and and cook, cooking up a, a coherent volume. So all all the essays in the book um, either emerged out of an artwork that was exhibited in, in the show, or emerged from a presentation that that someone gave. Um, so, so we had Donna Haraway um, participating a, in a number of, of the events, open ended discussions, um, Karen Barad, Anna Singh. So it was basically a gathering together. A, a collection of, of interesting ideas and artifacts that were left behind. Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the things I really love about it is the book actually works really beautifully in concert with a companion website. And I'll make sure um, that listeners have access to that website link in the write-up on the post that goes with this interview. Um, But this is really, really brilliant because it allows the pieces that are collected in the volume to really take other shape and take other form in the explorations, visuals, um, cinematic, um, other source of explorations that go with each one of the pieces online. And it also, I think, really pushes us to challenge what we think of as the mode of engaging with a piece of scholarly work. It pushes us off the page and then brings us back onto the page in a way that I think um, it is a really beautiful model for how web and print can interact to produce really innovative experiences for the for the reader um, and for the spectator experiencer, were you from the beginning conceptualizing the website and the book um, as two integral parts of a single whole? And can you talk a little bit about that relationship between the um, Uh, website and the book um, and the way that you envision ideally them interacting for the experiencer or reader?
0: So so the website uh, is still very much a, a living space. So um, we, we have a, a swarm of collaborators who are operating behind the scenes and and ever open to new people joining that swarm. Um, part part of what we're doing is assembling a, a living collection of, of keywords of multi-species studies. So people are taking words and concepts from, from the book and then um, creating these sort of virtual installations, a, a curated space where video, audio uh, and prose is coming together to, to give these ideas a, a second life of sorts um, it, originally I, I conceptualized it as a, as a more integrative uh website and um and book um i, I wanted to do sort of a, a an ebook where you could have embedded video and, and this sorts of thing but but during the design process, I I really realized that um, the ebook is where the the webpage was in 1995. I I think the standards that are being um, worked out these days are are not really well developed. So um, rather than try to Integrate it all into to one interface and in a, a standard that might get outdated in a year or two or five. Um, we decided to have sort of these these parallel um, places, and um, I, I think the the flexibility um, that you know WordPress, which is the behind the scenes tools we're using to craft the website, you know, it's, it's, it's not a, a very flashy way of designing a site, but it, it's, it's sort of built to last. And um, what we're trying to do is, is yeah, make, make it a social space where, where people can interact with it on, on their own terms.
1: Mm -hmm. I think it works really, really well. And and, um, maybe we'll talk a little bit later about your advice, perhaps, for other people who might want to think, again, um, with the page, but also think beyond the page as a way to create experience. For readers, but before we get to that, let's talk talk a little bit more about um, what's going on early in the volume. Now, you've already talked about gleaning as one of the conceptual metaphors that really motivates, or at least um, that comes up early in the book, is something that motivates the way the book um, and the salon took shape. You also talk about the idea of poaching. Um, Poaching is methodology. You talk about having issued a call for poachers rather than a call for papers. Um, So could you talk a little bit about that, since that seems really central to what's going on throughout the book? What is poaching and how does that animate for you something important about um, both the kind of work that the book does and the way that the book works?
0: So this idea of poaching comes from Michel Deserteaux who who uh talks about uh, reading as poaching. So, um, in the practice of everyday life, uh, he, he talks about the sort of game preserve of the elite literati, like philosophers and others who, um, sort of cordon off these, these discursive spaces and forbid others to, uh, trespass upon them. Um, so, so this idea of reading as poaching, really celebrates the way that, um, a, a reader brings, um, uh, you know, creativity and flair to every text. And, um, rather than s- sort of set up this, this oppositional thing where, you know, there's this, this reified category of person, the author and, and then the reader, um, reading as poaching is, is, is an opportunity for, intellectuals to engage with each other, to push and to poke and to prod. Um, The Matsutake Worlds Project uh, uh, helped me, uh, you know, understand this practice. It's it's a collaborative group that Anna Singh and and many others uh, formed to study uh, Matsutake, which is this mushroom and um, which has very elaborate chains uh, uh, all around the world of of people who collect them. Um, So this collaborative team started... uh, Using, using this practice of poaching to do collaboratively authored uh, essays. So um, one would go do field work in China and the other would go do field work in the Pacific Northwest. And someone would be working um, at another place where Matsutake are co- collected in Europe. And then everyone would bring these texts to the table and people would push and prod and poke at them. So uh, Liba Fair at UCLA Um, wrote a really brilliant little uh, web intervention for cultural anthropology uh, on the practice of poaching, which we in effect poached for the multi-species salon. and, and she, she likens, uh, uh, you know, the practice of poaching is, is definitely like, uh, a chef poaching a pear, you know, s- sweetening it with, with honey, adding, adding a little wine. So, so basically the, the text is transformed as, as it's read. So, um, in some of our key events with the multi-species salon, instead of asking people to stand up there, And give their standard conference presentations, we put texts on the table that were already published or things that were forthcoming and invited people to intrude on other people's field sites. Uh, We we had productive cross readings of of people working in very different parts of the world who were able to read into each other's work in, in creative and productive and transgressive ways.
1: So this is really exciting um, for me just to think about, and I'm sure for listeners as well, as a potential model of how we might motivate and organize gatherings um, where we're coming together and really making the most out of the fact that we're physically together in a conversational space in the future. Um, So talk me through this a little bit. Um, we're at one day, any day um, of this multi-species salon, you've sent out um, directions to the people who are participating and set up this, um, this kind of poaching situation. So talk us through this. Um, do you actually suggest, do you and the organizers suggest the texts for common poaching or do you invite the participants to suggest those texts? And then once we're together in the same space, what is an example of um, what some of the most productive moments for you of this poaching um, look like?
0: So, so it does actually require a lot of behind the scenes work to, to make these events work. And um, it, I, I think a lot of it's like matchmaking, you know, identifying people um, who might be from different fields, who might be uh, in totally different um, conceptual spaces, but who might have generative conversation um, if if they're brought together, so um, yeah it, it involved sort of months of planning for some of these events where in, in part it's just convincing people that that they uh, can productively come to the table and um, you know aligning these these different interests so um on, on the day, I, I, I think some of the most um uh dynamic and inspiring interactions were, were ones where where people really did get deep inside each other's projects and um you know, do do a little bit more than what a discussant is is doing at a conference, um to to almost yeah, pre- present someone else's paper as if it w- was your own with uh creative uh flares and twists. And yeah, I, I think um you know, to, to set up an event, to make it work. Uh, it, it, it helps to both have, um, people who are, um, identified as, as responsible for getting the conversation going. And then others who maybe have a less scripted role or a clearly identified role in in the event who might function as provocateurs, who who might stir, stir the pot a little bit and, and get those dynamic interchanges. So, so in, in part, it is just, um, You know, that that classic work of of a discussant or or of a chair, um, the the intellectual work to identify common threads uh, amongst um, scholars who might not necessarily um, already be thinking about their work in the same context. And um, but, yeah, I I think that that. the, the, the reframing of, of that work as as poaching as 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 the work of provocateur um, I, I guess loosens things up a little bit and, and allows for um, surprises and and dynamic interactions
1: now it's really clear that in many different ways um, and, and it's probably already clear, I hope, to listeners, even just in the first few minutes of our conversation, collaboration, um, again, in many ways and on many levels, seems really, really important for multi-species ethnography, for the work of the Salon, and also for the work of the volume. Now, in the introduction to the volume, you talk a little bit about the approach that you and your co-authors have taken toward collaborative authorship, right, of some of the pieces, collected in the volume, for example. And this is still relatively rare in humanistic scholarship. So um, to open up a little bit a discussion about collaborative authorship, can you talk to us um, just a little bit about some of the aspects of that work that you've found particularly important, Um, some of the things that you've done with co-authors that you think have really made things work well that you might want to suggest as models for future Kind of kinds of collaboration among humanists
0: so, so my first book is is a study of collaboration uh, it's it 's a, it's a book about an indigenous political movement in West Papua um, so So I went to West Papua thinking that I was going to find resistance to the forces of globalization and this occupying army um, so, so there I found collaboration was about um, getting past eternal standoffs between. Um, people who are imagined as the enemy, as, as the other and finding creative political solutions, um, collaboration, you know, obviously has this, this genealogy, you know, the collaborators in Nazi occupied France were the ones who sold out the cause. And, um, I, I think trying to reclaim that, that word, um, is is a really important thing to do not only in political projects where um you can create new coalitions and and new temporary alliances to work together on a common object of concern um and, and i think we really might take um uh, inspiration from some of this work being done on, on political dynamics, indigenous political movements, as, as we're understanding these, these multi species collaborative, collaborative projects. So, um, there's a lot of people who are talking about bio art, you know, art that uses living matter as its medium. As a collaborative practice and, and I think there's there's a way in, in certain circles that that word is being naively celebrated, not recognizing the conditions of asymmetry of vulnerability and risk that these other forms of life um, are subjected to in, in an art context um, on, on the other hand I, I, I think that collaborative research collaborative work with colleagues um, you know, e- e- even though um, issues of asymmetry and, and power dynamics and raw exploitation are often at work in, in these relationships in political realms or in multi-species realms, these, these relationships can also be incredibly generative and, um, you know, complementary expertise really lets you say new things about, um, uh, uh, you know, think about elusive phenomena that are otherwise difficult to study. Um, so in, in writing um, a number of these essays in the book with with other people, I I found that the collaborative writing um, with each set of individual authors had a different dynamic. Some um, would just send snippets of text and and it was sort of up to me as a, a poacher or, or a chef to sort of cook these little snippets of text in, into a common, seamless narrative. Um, in, in other collaborative writing projects, we were really, you know, poaching each other. And um, there, there wasn't a, 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 just sort of one clear editor, but um, all of us were were sort of involved in um, bringing different snippets of prose together, illuminating, you know, the key argument. Um uh, and it's it's yeah it's its it's a more fun process for me than you know sitting behind your desk this this solitary practice that so so many of us in the humanities and, and social sciences are trained to do you know solitary in in a room with a computer alone um so so i think it's 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 a it's a great way to uh reinvigorate scholarship and, and I found it was like a side project I could do so as as I was working on my main um, research uh, in STS, science and technology studies, uh, ethnography of science in Latin America and Florida, I felt like I could devote you know like snippets of my day to these collaborative exercises which helped me get out of ruts that I was stuck in, um, just, just focused on my own work.
1: Mm-hmm. That's awesome, and I think um, in many ways, and this is just one of them, the work that the book embodies as a model in its form and in its process, as well as in its content. So let's talk about, um, let's move from talking about the collaborative aspect of the form and talk about the structure of the book. So the contributions to the book are organized into three parts. And the first part is called Blasted Landscapes. Now, this part of the book collects three different chapters. One is Hope in Blasted Landscapes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. There's R.A.W. Raw Ass Milk Soap, which is awesome. They're all awesome. And then there's a piece on Blasted Landscapes and the Gentle Arts of Mushroom Picking. Um, That is a contribution um, by the Matsutake Worlds Research Group that you've mentioned already in our conversation So in the first chapter, Hope in Blasted Landscapes, you describe an event in November 2010 where you and others remodeled a warehouse in New Orleans, um, the Ironworks, into a gallery. And you talk about um, the importance of this and the context of this. So could you, I'm going to kind of hit the ball back to you, could you talk to us a little bit about that? What was so important about this remodeling of the warehouse um, and what for you was crucial about that process? Um, That gets at some of the issues that are most important for you about what's happening in this part of the book
0: So so that that project we were doing in New Orleans took place uh, Against the backdrop of a series of disasters. So hurricane Katrina had had recently swept through um, As as we were working um, in the setup to the show the Deepwater Horizon explosion happened um, dumping just an unprecedented amount of, of toxins of oil into the Gulf of Mexico. So um, the particular space we were working in, this this warehouse, had also been blasted in a sense. It, it, it had been it was part of this neighborhood that, that um, had been hit by capitalism and, and, and then abandoned. All, all sorts of fickle processes were at, at play. Um, there was a lot of wreckage in the yard, everything from um, junked cars to hypodermic needles. We, we inherited a, a project that was partially restored. So, so the guy um, who owned the space, uh, a, a man named named Gilbert, was was a, a New Orleans attorney who had uh bought this warehouse and, and, and was in the process of turning it into an, an art space and a space for things like weddings and and big receptions and We, we were the first show uh, the first art happening that that um, Gilbert was able to showcase cool. in the space so so we were actually on the front lines helping him do some of the the hard manual labor. Um, one one of uh, the critical insights that emerge from this space is sort of a question of hope for whom. I think in in a lot of disaster zones after catastrophe, um, it, it's often a, a, an opportunity for long standing. Um, uh, powerful interest groups to implement their visions of, of possible futures and and very much this was happening in new orleans while we were working there, there was a uh, talk of redeveloping this neighborhood uh, uh, a new tram line was going to be put through that part of town which in effect um would bring this process of gentrification in, into effect um at one point um During the setup for the show, uh, the wife of a real estate magnate um, told us directly, uh, sort of spinning our own words and putting it back to us that, you are all hope and blasted landscapes. So, um, it, you know, part, part of what we're trying to do is is work against those sorts of trends and, and creatively play within these spaces, uh, contingently opened up by the intersection of capitalism, the privilege that comes with an academic position, um, you know, the privilege that comes with being an artist in, in art worlds. Um, one, one project in particular um, really worked against that sense of hope for the elite, hope for the bourgeoisie of New Orleans to revivify and recapitalize a space that had been abandoned. Um, this, this was a project called The Pretty Doe Dairy um, by Nina Nichols and Amy Jenkins. And, and what they did was create a relational art project that wasn't bound to the gallery. Um, they had some goats in their backyard and um, first of all, they, they learned a really surprising fact uh, about goat milk. Um, a lot of poison ivy is in New Orleans and, and blighted places, uh, properties that have been designated by the city as as basically being overgrown. So you, so you start getting a lot of fines if, if the city designates your plot of land as, as blighted. And those fines were dispossessing people um, people were losing losing their houses in this cycle of debt and foreclosure as these plants like poison ivy were were moving in so the surprising fact that they learned about goats and poison ivy was that if the goats eat this noxious weed they'll make milk that serves as a prophylactic to to the, the chemical toxins and in, in the leaves. So they would use the goats to clear poison ivy um, from the backyards uh, of, of their neighbors while making uh, lattes that would protect people from poison ivy. So in effect, this, this, this art project um, was, was ecological and both sort of a, um, you know, uh, human goat um, plant, multi species assemblage kind of way, but also I- embodied all sorts of uh, uh, ecological values in, in human social realms um, that that were about not just uh, you know gentrifying a neighborhood so that the elite could move back in but about caring for the people and the landscapes and the organisms that are there to, to create a, sort of a biosocial community um, a multi-species assemblage that, that embodied principles of, of economic justice and anti-racism um, so so Nina and, and Amy would take their goats around uh, the St. Roche uh, neighborhood of New Orleans where they lived where the show took place lear- learning about the histories of particular plots of land entering into dialogue with their neighbors and, and learning how to help them um, work together together uh, with with artists in the community to, to actualize concrete visions of hope.
1: Now, one of the really striking things about this part of the book, and actually the next part of the book as well, is how much um, milk actually flows through. Like you just mentioned, um, the pretty Doe dairy, Um, there's this really concrete way for the reader that the flowing oil, like the spreading oil that begins this part of the book and this part of the chapter is kind of countermanded, or at least met in its flows with this flowing milk that kind of flows through many of the chapters that's consistently reminding us of or at least bringing out the importance of the way that this particular liquid and this particular flow is really intimately connected with place, with particularities and with care. Um, And that's something that we also see in the um, ass milk soap chapter, right?
0: Yeah, so so when when that uh, uh proposal for raw ass milk soap in in uh in this multi-species salon emerged in my inbox, I, I initially deleted it. I thought that it was some kind of spam or porn or <laughs> I, I was just like freaked out. I didn't want to engage. Um, but thankfully one one of my other curators, um Amy Jenkins, opened that email up and found inside a really smart, compelling um, experiment in multi species storytelling that that plays with the idea that um, words often harm the ones we love, especially when the ones we love are non human animals so um, Karen Bolander, the author and artist who 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 works with raw ass milk soap, um, talks about logos uh, as something that that gets in the way you know la- language is an impediment to um, telling um, stories in, in multi-species worlds for, for Karen, um, so so she talks about the antibodies that are in milk as these material semiotic elements that tell multi-species stories. So she went on this long journey with an American spotted ass uh, named Alias and. And all along the way, um, Alias was eating things, eating grass, tasting microbes. They're walking through the blasted landscapes of the American South, stopping at places like Oak Ridge, where they built the atomic bomb. uh, You know, walking along uh, highways where strip malls have have, blasted those landscapes. And at the end... um, Alias gave birth to another ass called Passenger. Karen didn't realize that Alias was pregnant when she started the journey and what you learn if, if you're um, into animal husbandry sort of like a basic thing about a pregnant mammal is that you don't want to expose it to a whole range of places. You, you want a, 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 a mother that's about to give birth to be in one place to develop antibodies to the things around it so that those antibodies can be secreted into the milk for the newborn. But, but what what Karen has, had created was a... A multi-species story of this this journey about uh, you know entanglements with all these different places, um, uh, you know a, a very nomadic story of, of wandering through the south and and she talks about uh, the, the the first milk um, the colostrum as as this sort of supercharged witch's brew. Um, her project sometimes explodes when, when you want to make soap out of out of milk, whether it's ass milk or cow milk or even human milk, um, uh, you, you add lie to it. And if you don't get the timing and, and the proportions of the lie right, it explodes and it results in this, this huge mess. Um, so, so I think that, that sort of unstable um, property of the thing itself speaks to the, the power of the project. And, and, and I think it's a really compelling way to think about alternate modes of, of storytelling that um, are, are working to get beyond the limits of language.
1: Right. And you've just mentioned uh, the phrase or talked a little bit about the importance of entangled places, right, the sort of places and entanglement. And this is also something that um, is really much, uh, very much at the heart of the next chapter, since you've already mentioned it. right? You've talked a little bit about this Matsutake World's research group, and this seems to be so important as a kind of touchstone for many of the pieces and much of the work that's happening in the volume. Um, did you want to speak a little bit to this project. So for you, as it's instantiated in the book, is there anything that's particularly important um, about this contribution on behalf of the Matsutake Worlds Research Group that you'd want to showcase for listeners?
0: So, so, the Matsutake Worlds project has come up with this really interesting uh, idea about collaboration. So, they they talk about uh, uh, mycorrhizae, these networks that that fungi form underground, connecting different kinds of plants, as as a as a different sort of figure for thinking about collaboration. So, so mycorrhizae interpenetrate plant roots. Um, a, a, a single fungal network can be plugged in to a lot of different plant species, and um, you know these these. These networks are channeling resources and, and information um amongst these these different living living critters so so they're, they're trying to follow um the commodity chain of matsutake mushrooms around the world um Trying to think mycorrhizally, so I, I just think that that's a super potent figure for for thinking about a lot of these issues. And and this phrase "blasted landscapes" is is one that sort of Anna Seng and I are both poaching together in, in this project. It comes from Bettina Stotzer, um, someone who works in uh, the urban areas of of, of Germany. Um, she she was uh, initially formulating this idea to think about the ecological communities that emerged in the aftermath of of, of the Second World War and these inter. Interstitial spaces between East and West Germany. Um, So, so I think, yeah, together um, with with this this Michael project, uh, I I think the the Matsutake Worlds group offers a a really um, uh, poignant set of of figures and metaphors for for grappling with with multi-species worlds that don't necessarily concern fungi, um, but but that also sort of destabilize. Uh, dominant ways of, of talking about like animal studies or, or now we have critical plant studies. I, I think the fungal worlds are, um, a, a really, um, interesting liminal figure that, that disrupts, uh, uh, emerging institutionalized ways of, of, of thinking about multi-species worlds.
1: Yeah, and for listeners um, who are particularly interested in this, there's this sentence that in this um, chapter, chapter three, that recurs that's really a touchstone, I think, for a lot of the work in this part of the book. Ruins are now our gardens. Um, And the piece also touches on locality in a very different way than what many of us may be used to in our experience with um, attentiveness to place and locality. I mean, this piece really takes us into Yunnan and Oregon and Finland and Japan. So for listeners who are especially interested in these kinds of dynamics, Chapter 3... But this is a book that's actually filled with lots um, of lots more contributions that take us into the other two parts of the book. So let's get there, um, even if it's just for a little while. Part two takes us into what's called Edible Companions. And here we see much more um, attention given to some of the themes that came up. Um, in different ways. In the first part of the book, milk, for example, and the importance of eating things. So this is a part of the book that includes an interlude, for recipes, and a chapter. And it takes us into microbiopolitics. It takes us into human milk cheese. There are wonderful um, needs, reseeds wool sculptures here. There's acorn mush. Um, there are dandelions that are fed blood. There's all kinds of wonderful stuff happening in this part of the book. So for you as editor of the volume, are there any particular pieces here um, that you feel are especially moving or powerful in doing the kind of work um, that for you is particularly important in this part of the book?
0: So the edible companion section is about uh, thinking of uh, with critters that are good to live with and, and also eat. And w- one of the pieces, the human cheese uh, uh, project, is is about maybe denaturing multi species relations that we take for granted. So a lot of us are are, are drinking milk every day, eating cheese, but don't necessarily think about um, you know the the conditions of exploitation that, that the other mammalian bodies are in so that we might enjoy their milk. Um, you know, what sort of diseases do cows have? What sort of antibiotics do they have? What sort of, um, uh, you know, uh, living conditions do they have? When, when we're talking about human mothers giving milk to a cheese project, everyone wants to talk about those issues, right? So, um, you know, I I hosted a number of tasting events where people brought very different reactions. Um, You know, a lot of the artworks in in this collection play with the grotesque. Definitely raw-ass milk soap um, plays, at least in the title, with this idea of the grotesque. And and, and a lot of people, um, you know, some who are never breastfed, uh, some who... um, uh, yeah, actually, um, well, there's there's also sort of a fetish community, it turns out, of, of, of men who, who buy milk online. Um, mm-hmm. So 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 this this project of human cheese really um, tried to expose um, how biopolitics is functioning, how um, circuits of matter and meaning are working in the industrialized world and and offer a, an unconventional way, a, a strange proposal for rearticulating re-articulating them that really gets people speaking and and thinking differently. And throughout this section, the edible companion section, we're playing with the genre of recipe to think, um, you know, not just about um, describing things as they are, but inviting people to sort of take these sections of the book and, and try to do them themselves. So um, there's very clear instructions on how to make acorn mush. If, if you follow them um, and sort of follow the squirrels in, in your local communities, at least in North America, you can figure out which are the good acorns to, to harvest. You want to get there like in, in the early days of, of autumn so that you can get, get the good ones ahead of the squirrels. And it, it's a time-consuming process, but, but a process that invites all sorts of reflections, you know, reflections on on genocide, reflections on surviving white settler colonialism, um, but also about, you know, looking towards the future and imagining ways of creating um biosocial communities that that invite others in, into the into the community and, and keep them in the world. Um, the Thneeds Reseeds project is one of my favorites. Um, it's 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 the recipe that I contributed to the book, and um, it is in very close dialogue with the artwork of Deanna Pendel, an artist that works on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington. And and what she did was um, try to respond to this ongoing disaster in her backyard, basically. Uh, the the redwood and Douglas fir communities in in that region of the world um, are routinely clear cut, and and in, in the aftermath of those disasters, the standardized way for responding to them doesn't necessarily work. The the replanting regimes um, are often about maximizing the production potential of these spaces for capital. Um, So so what Deanna did was take a book by Dr. Seuss off the shelf, um, The Lorax, and creatively play with some of the figures in that book. So The the Lorax um, basically had an oppositional politics to capitalism. I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. And ultimately, his speaking for nature Pretty much failed. The the, the the story by Dr. Seuss is a tragic tale of clear cutting. The truffle trees were turned into these brightly colored sweaters called thneeds that everyone needs. And and the narrator of the story, the old onesler, is is sort of the specter of dead capital. Um, but the story ends on a, a hopeful note. The the old onesler gives a young boy this this little seed and and. Deanna is playing with, with that, that, that idea, the figure of a seed. And what she did was invited people to donate sweaters. She put this ad up on Freecycle and um, said that I need your old funky sweaters for this art project that I'm doing. So she ended up with all these funky Technicolor things from the 70s. And, and she felted those sweaters using this time tested process whereby wool fibers adhere to themselves and get, you know, these small felted balls. And and she created habitat for one species in particular, uh, silvery bryum, bryum argentinium, a a moss that she describes as a first responder. You can find this moss on roof tiles of Quito, Ecuador, or on the tarmacs of of airports like John F. Kennedy here in New York City. Um, So she created a, a space where that moss might flourish, but also with the sense of creating an opening to possible futures to create multi-species communities that might flourish beyond the confines of her own imagination. So it turns out that that Silvery Brian Moss um, encourages the the ship and um, uh, germination rates of, of tree seedlings. Um, she also thought that this this. Um, these little balls she created might serve as habitat for bulls and rats and other other small animals. Um but it's it's really about creating this opening to a possible future. Um but also uh doing it in this playful, ironic but sort of tragic kind of way. She she sent 21 needs to our art gallery, which she said was enough for one square meter of forest. So it, she's not saying that we should all go put these small technicolor wool balls in, in the forest and hope for the best. But I, I think she's really trying to encourage us to think outside of the box and to Make a commitment to care for a particular place and, and, and care in this open-ended, playful way that's not about restoring an imagined past that might not have ever existed in, in the first place, but creating this, this generative space where a multi-species flourishing might emerge.
1: Now, the spirit of play and playful intervention specifically are very much at the heart of the first chapter in the third part of the book. So the third part of the book is entitled Life and Biotechnology, and it includes some really powerful and really moving chapters that get at the heart of um, these intersecting issues of life and biotech. So in chapter five, which is a chapter that you co-wrote, we have these figures of um, kind of playful intervention, like I mentioned, these sorts of of trickster figures coming up in the context of this work. Um, so you introduce us to the Reverend of Nano Bio Info Cogno. You introduce us to Adam Zaretsky, who's a kind of trickster figure in this context as well. Can you talk a little bit about what's happening in this part of the book in terms of what you feel um, is, uh, are some of the most important issues that come out in light of this work?
0: For, for me, one of the most important theorists of play is Gregory Bateson, who talked about the meta message that signals this is play, sort of a, a framing statement that's all, often not clearly articulated like in humans with words. But, you know, maybe it's a raise of the eyebrow or a slight smile. Um, so so Bateson talks about play amongst wolves and the difference between a nip and a bite. So what's the difference between a playful nip and a bite? And it's it's all about framing for Bateson. And I think in these multi Species encounters, in particular the one we describe in this chapter um, with Kathy High and, and the rats that she purchased. Um, it, it's it's often difficult to know how to communicate that meta message. This is play. Um, so so Kathy suffers from Crohn's disease, a, 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 a condition that results in all sorts of intestinal discomfort, and uh, she learned that some rats had been bioengineered to embody her own illness. Um, HLA-B27 was the technical name for these rats. And um, she just used her university address and placed an order from uh, uh, this this farm that, that grows these transgenic animals. And when, when the animals first arrived, Kathy was terrified of them and the rats were terrified of her. Um, Kathy's prior experiences with rats had been in New York City, where you could see them running on the subway tracks or scuttling across your foot in, in an exceptional moment and it, it really was a grotesque almost hideous animal for her um, sort of a, an abject subject but but gradually both the rats and Kathy learned how to maybe communicate that meta message like let, let's play like here's here's how we might play um, one of the rats in in particular learned how to play this game with Kathy, which involved pulling this toilet paper roll back and forth and she could do it for hours on end. (laughs) And, and, and I think, yeah, figuring out how to play is, is something that scholars need need to need to work on (laughs) in in a general sense. Uh, Gregory Bateson talked about the interplay of rigor and imagination as, as being the most important thing to scholarship. And, And, and I think there's a lot to learn from Bateson, And um, yeah, I I think in many, many ways, this book is an experiment in in trying to bring those two things together and learning how to play.
1: Now, speaking of learning how to play and the kind of interplay of rigor and imagination, one of the chapters that really showcases this is a chapter that's all about the work of an artist who really begins the book um, and then ends the book. And this is an artist called Patricia Piccinini. Am I pronouncing that right? Yeah, that's right. Okay, but, um, So she's um, somebody who produces this amazing, amazing sculptural work that I'm just going to kind of hit this back to you and ask you to talk a little bit about um, what's going on with Patricia Piccinini's work that you find particularly compelling. And how does um, it speak to and help open up some of the issues that you feel are really important to this part of the book?
0: So Patricia Piccinini is an Australian artist based out of Melbourne, and she's uh, technically very skilled. She creates these organisms that are lifelike and realistic that um, she describes as space aliens that have come to earth to save particular endangered species. So um, two two of her um, uh, uh, Fabulated organisms, fabulous, fabulated organisms that uh, appear in the book are, are are the bodyguard and the surrogate. So, so if you open up the book and look at uh, page. Page one, the the frontispiece, um, you'll see this this creature with big jaws staring back at you. That that was the poster child for the first multi species salon, and it's, it's it's an image that is is challenging, it, it um is is frightening. And I, I often give a lecture to undergraduates and ask them to try to identify this this species. And um, many of them try. They think it looks like a, a kind of primate. Um, when I tell them it lives in Australia, they're they're really befuddled and confused. Um, but what this is, is, is a creature that that Piccinini has, has playfully created to get us thinking differently about endangered species. Um, so, so the bodyguard, um, is for a little bird called the helmeted honey eater or heho, ho. And this bird lives near Melbourne um, and basically uh, is severely endangered because of, you know, habitat loss, the, the typical story of, of, you know, development and pesticides and introduced species that, that have become predators, things like cats. Um, so, so Piccinini's, uh is introducing this, this idea that maybe, um, Maybe there is this this potential of salvation, but but she's she's playing with these 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 tropes, um, really unsettling conventional ways of thinking about these issues. So so Donna Haraway's contributed an amazing essay about Piccinini's work to the Multi Species Salon, where she's exploring speculative fabulations and science fictions, and um, u- using P- Piccinini's work to diagnose um, uh, sort of a lot of problems we have in the humanities and social sciences. When when we approach um, issues like conservation, um, really pointing to um, some of the uncomfortable aspects of what happens to a species when it becomes endangered, you know, the, the, the sorts of violences that are, uh, uh, you know, put into play on, on individual animals in the name of saving a species, but also sort of opening it up to think about um, ways of flourishing in um In situations that have these long legacies of colonialism, capitalism, um, she she talks about doing the wrong thing for the right reasons and, and maybe letting aliens loose on Earth to save endangered animals is an example of that doing the wrong thing for the right reasons.
1: Thank you so much. Now, we um, have talked about a couple of the pieces in the third part of the book, Life in Biotech. And before we leave this part of the book and kind of move out to wrapping things up, are there any other pieces that come up here in these three chapters, the Brittle Star chapter, um, the Piccinini chapter, the Age of Biotech chapter, that you feel are particularly compelling or moving that you'd like to bring to the attention? Of listeners,
0: yeah, I think Karen Barad's piece on the brittle star is is a really excellent distillation of of um, some of her ideas about interaction. So um, the brittle star doesn't have eyes; it is an eye. So the whole exoskeleton of of this this animal uh, can sense light and dark. And um, she talks about the ways that this. Animal is intraactively engaging with the world, so interaction for Barad is different from interaction. So, if you picture two billiard balls bouncing off of each other, they might change the direction that they're traveling in, but they they don't really, you know, their their essence or their mode of being in the in, in the world isn't torqued. The, the brittle star she shows. Intraacts with the world in in um, these relations of becoming. So so I think that essay in particular is a really um, accessible distillation of, of Bharat's very intricate and quite complex corpus of ideas.
1: Thank you so much, Evan. Now, before we um, kind of come to our conclusion and wrap things up, just to move outward from the book um, for a moment and to reflect back on the series of gatherings from which the book emerged for other listeners um, who may be listening to this and may um, go to the website and the book and explore and may want to um, enact or curate kinds of gatherings that similarly move us away from the traditional stand-and-deliver conference to a more poaching-oriented, a more collaborative model of interaction among um, colleagues coming from very different fields and kinds of work, do you have any kind of major Point of advice. Um, Definitely do this, definitely don't do this for other scholars and artists and thinkers who might want to be curating um, similar, if not in type, similar in spirit kinds of gatherings um, for producing sorts of entanglements and conversations.
0: So, so a lot of folks are are already starting to play with with uh, sort of the format of the salon. Katie King just uh, staged one for her students at the University of Maryland, and and Celia Lowe, uh, actually this week tomorrow is is doing one with her students at, at the University of, of Washington in Seattle, um, and and I think yeah, like staging these creative spaces of play is, is a great thing to do with undergrads and I think uh, graduate students alike and and, and also colleagues. Um, I, I think some of the uh, things to think about are um, that very serious boundaries do have to be maintained in, in certain circumstances. So, for example, um, one of the pieces in, uh, highlighted in, in the book, um, Life Cycle of a Common Weed, which involves feeding blood to dandelions, um, that, that was shut down by a number of galleries because um, the you know paranoid biosafety people. Wasn't, weren't convinced that the artist was capable of, of um, technically um, keeping everyone safe. Um, in, 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 the, in this particular case, um, Caitlin Berger and the artist was very technically capable and, and it was sort of misplaced paranoia. So Caitlin had uh, gotten a certificate in phlebotomy. She'd learned how to um, take the blood of other people and herself and do so in a very sterile, um, safe way. So, so what motivates Caitlin's project? Is this recognition that her own blood she, she got contaminated with um, hepatitis C as a young girl she got a blood transfusion with infected blood, so her own blood, which would be harmful to other humans, is nutritious to plants because it has nitrogen. Um, I would only do that intervention if you have a training you know a certificate in phlebotomy. don't don't do that at home and unless, unless you are, are are willing to seriously commit to that sort of um, technical um, expertise um, yeah and and then I think the other thing is like caring for living matter, living organisms, whether they be plants or or fruit flies or or rats, takes a very serious commitment um. We've, we've done some art interventions with Xenopus frogs that live to be 30 years old. So so if, if you're planning to, to work with animals to, um, you know, do playful interventions with fruit flies or, or whatever, um, you know, you, you have to seriously think about um, the issues at, at stake. You know, it, it is possible to. Do experimental interventions with with art, even in your own home that um, attend to the needs of the animal to, um, you know, what what it needs to flourish. Um, But it's not something to take on lightly. So, um, yeah, I guess I guess uh, in in doing these things well, it, it takes a lot of technical know how serious preparation. Um, but if, if you do that and, and sort of choose uh, which playful interventions to stage carefully, I, I think these these sorts of um, playful interventions can be very productive and generative.
1: And I, One of the things I really like, too, um, about the spirit and the practice of these gatherings that you're modeling for us here and that you've kind of concretized here in the volume is it it really reminds us that care for other beings, I think, extends to care for each other as people, which isn't often something that we keep in mind right at the front of our minds when we're organizing academic events um, and engaging with each other as academics. I think there's something really to be said for moving to a kind of um, sphere where we can think of our interactions with each other as well as interactions of care. Um, And that might also help open up certain kinds of possibilities for us as artists and scholars and thinkers and as a community.
0: Exactly. Yeah. And and I think I'd go back to that word curate again, which at its Latin root means to care. So thinking about scholarly practice as a curatorial practice, I I think, can be very generative.
1: So, Evan, there's a lot in the book um, that we didn't have a chance to get to, even though we touched on, I think, a lot of um, what are among the most exciting um, of many, many exciting parts of the book. Is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners?
0: Um, Let's see. I I, I think, uh, well, just make some of the recipes. I I, I think that's, that's, that's my, my main advice in, in, you know, becoming a real poacher with this book is to actually try to make some of the recipes. They're not that hard. Um, you can get human milk uh, on the internet. There's an online marketplace for human milk, onlythebreast.com. Acorns are very easy, easily obtainable. Uh, pinyon nuts you can find if you live in the American Southwest. So um, I think just as, as uh, yeah a provocation to readers, don't just read, make...
1: Cool. So now that the book is out and congratulations on what um, I hope is obvious um, is a really exciting volume. What's next for you? What are you currently working on that's inspiring you?
0: So, so the project that I was working on in parallel uh, to this is also coming to fruition. It's, it's a new book called Emergent Ecologies, and it's coming out in November with, with Duke University Press. Um, Ken, Ken Whistaker, my editor at Duke, has um, worked with me on three projects now, and um, I love him to death and I love the press. Um, so maybe I'll just say a little bit. Do I have time to say yeah, a little course. bit about Emergent Ecologies? So, so it's, it's a book that follows the flight of capital and, and um, multiple species across the the fragmented landscapes of, of the Americas. So mostly it's in Panama, Costa Rica, Florida, um, places that, um, very much are structured by these legacies of, of imperialism, um, where where things are emerging that that are are somewhat different um, from the past. Um, one of the chapters talks about um, the bombs that were left behind by the U.S. military in Panama as strange figures of hope, as these uh, uh, sort of cyborg rivets that fasten ecosystems into place. Often these bombs um, are functioning as talismans, protecting individual. Creatures and, and whole multi species communities from incursions by people from capitalist development, but sometimes they explode and result in violent pain and death, um, killing people and, and also um, tapirs and, and other forms of wildlife that have come to depend on them for their existence. Um, so, in addition to these blasted landscapes that are riddled with bombs and chemical weapons, the book also describes. Um, attempts to sort of save the day. Um, The amphibian arc is this transnational infrastructure that has been built to protect frogs from an emergent disease, a a fungus called chytrid. Um, So I'm sort of chronicling the the dreams and hopes that are pinned on this architecture and and also delving into the worlds of of chytrids. And um, I, I use a lot of, um, Experimental tactics in the book, rather than just showing up with a microphone and interviewing people, I built on um, some of the art uh, collaborations that I did with the Multi Species Salon to, um, you know, hack into a refrigerator to create a, a temporary utopia for frogs that are being killed by conservationists, um, and and I also partnered with some ethno some people who are experts at studying uh, primates, monkeys in particular, Rhesus. Packs, um to, to chronicle uh, emergent forms of life in Florida, the place where I was born. So I've been hearing rumors since my youth of these monkeys that were on the loose in Florida, um, rumored to escape from the Tarzan films. and And I went to to study these monkeys, both using ethnographic methods but also ethological methods. So, in part, of this book is is a methodological experiment, asking, um, you know, what the tools of ethnography, ethology, and bioart um, might have to say uh, about the current uh, historical moment and um, the emergence of, of ecological communities. Um, but but it's also sort of a theoretical exploration of um, Some of the cosmopolitical ideas of Isabel Stingers, who talks about um, the sort of articulations that one might make with with others in the world against the background of an unknown cosmos, rethinking um, this debate about novel ecosystems with the help of Foucault, Nietzsche and others uh, to to think about surprising um, emergences that are either disrupting the established order or or forming new worlds uh, in our midst.
1: Wow. So I will eagerly anticipate that as well. Um, Best of luck finishing all of that up. And thank you so much for talking with me today. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on an awesome book. Thanks, Carla. You've been listening to new books in science, technology and society. Thanks very much for listening and we'll see you next time.